Amen. I'm going to start tonight in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. It's speaking of turning to the Lord and seeking the Lord while he's uh, near to be found. And then it talks about how the unrighteous need to to seek God and he'll pardon them from their iniquities and so forth. But we want to start reading in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts, meaning my thoughts are higher than yours. Now he's going to explain how this works. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, means does not return to, to heaven, but waters the earth. And maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be. Now remember the the subject matter is God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts and God's ways higher than our ways. Now he's not taunting man. He's not saying my thoughts are higher than yours. Too bad for you. My ways are higher than your ways. Too bad for you. He's not taunting man. He's trying to explain how man can understand God's thoughts and God's ways. And he identifies that. He identifies his thoughts being revealed through the word of God. He identifies his ways being revealed through the word of God. And he explains how the word comes. It comes down from heaven just like the rain. And the rain has a purpose. The rain is sent to the earth to water the earth so that it can bring forth and bud. He says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. Most translations say void of power. It shall not return unto me void of power, but it shall accomplish... That which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. I want you to notice what he's saying. God is saying, my word always works. My word always works. It's sent for a purpose. That purpose is to effect a change in you, to reveal my thoughts and my ways, so that your life will change. And it always works. T.L. Osborne preached the gospel to, to, well, at one time it was um, uh, clearly evident that he preached the gospel to more people face-to-face, so to speak. He'd have gigantic crusades and up to a million people in them. And, um, and at one time he had preached the gospel to more people face-to-face than any human being that had ever lived. I don't know if that's still the case because he's gone on to be with the Lord now and Reinhard Bonnke is having the crusades in the same manner that he did. But he preached the gospel on, on every inhabited continent on the face of the earth. And he got thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, we don't know, healed during his crusades by preaching that the same Jesus that paid the price for sin paid the price for sickness and disease. Now, when there were occasions, and it, it wasn't, this wasn't his ministry, so it wasn't an everyday thing. But on occasions where people would come to him, and question God's will to heal them. And you've heard me say numbers of times, numerous times, how that the number one hindrance to people receiving their healing from God is that they're not convinced that it's God's will to heal them. You convince somebody that it's God's will to heal them, and it's easy to get them healed. But the modern-day church, particularly the American church, has been taught so much unbelief about God trying to use, or sometimes using sickness to teach you, which he never does, And sometimes sickness comes from God, and it never is. And all kinds of things that, that, uh, all kinds of unscriptural doctrines that the American church has devised to try to explain things away. 
and it's created a, a, a sense of doubt, a sense of unbelief in most people so that when they see the truth of the word of God, it takes a while for, them to, for that word to penetrate and have an effect. So when there were occasions where somebody would come to Brother Osborne and say, you know, I want to receive my healing, but I'm just not sure it's God's will to heal me. He would always respond in the same way. He would ask them, do you believe it's God's will to keep his promise? He'd take healing out of the equation. He'd say, do you believe it's God's will to keep his promise? Well, that's a great question. Do you believe it's God's will to keep his promise? If it's not God's will to keep his promise, then God's a liar. Now, most people don't think it out that far, but that has to be true. If God made a promise that he did not intend to keep, then he's a liar. And if God's a liar, then we have no foundation or basis for faith to receive forgiveness of sins. We have no hope for heaven. So I want to ask you, is it God's will to keep his promise? Isaiah 55 tells us that God sends his word so that we can understand his ways and his thoughts. And his word never returns void. But it always accomplishes what he sent it to do. Now that doesn't mean it'll work in you whether you believe it or not. We know that that wasn't the way Jesus ministered healing when he was here on the earth. The majority of people that were healed in Jesus' ministry were healed on their own faith. Well, if Jesus required faith to receive healing or receive anything from God when he was here, then we have to conclude that faith is necessary to receive from God in our day as well. We're not going to be able to outdo Jesus, are we? Well, Jesus always looked for faith. Jesus, The Bible talks more about Jesus teaching things concerning the kingdom of God than it does anything else, any other part of his ministry. Now, I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and then we'll also look at John chapter 13, or John chapter 16, excuse me. John 14 and John 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples about two things in these chapters. Chapter 14, he's talking to them about doing the same works that he did. In other words, he's talking to them about ministering to others. He says in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, now that's Jesus saying, truly, truly. Some translations translated thus, and it's uh, certainly accurate. He's saying, I'm saying this to you. It's this way and no other way. He's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing the truth of what he's about to tell them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, in connection with doing those greater works, and, and that's, a, that's a hard scripture for most people to wrap their head around. Because Jesus is not saying what the modern day church teaches to be true. Jesus is not saying I'm in a class by myself. You should never expect to do the same works that the Son of God did. There's one way that Jesus was in a class by himself when he was here on the earth, and that was as our substitute. Everything else he said we could do what he did. Now, I'm glad I don't have to go to the cross, aren't you? I'm glad I don't have to pay the price for the sins of mankind. But everything else Jesus said you could do what he did. The works that I do shall you do also. He that believeth in me. 
The works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, how are we going to do those works? If we accept that Jesus is telling us the truth, and again, it comes down to the same thing. If he lied to us, then everything is up in the air. There's no foundation for faith, for salvation, or eternity, or anything. Jesus is telling us the truth. But how are we going to do those works? How are we going to heal the sick? How are we going to cast out devils? How are we going to do the same things that Jesus did here on the earth? Forget about the greater works, but I'm just talking about doing the same works. How are those works going to be accomplished? Notice in verse 13, he said, And whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask does not mean request. It means to call for or require or demand. He's saying, whatever you place a demand on in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask, same word, call for, require, demand. If you shall place a demand on anything in my name, I will do it. Now look with me over to John chapter 16. John chapter 14 is talking about doing the same works in ministry that he did. John chapter 16 is talking about your relationship with the Father as a believer. As a Christian. Notice Jesus is saying. Beginning in verse 23. He said and in that day. Talking about the day of the resurrection. The day when he through his death burial and resurrection. Has, been, has opened the door. Made the way plain for us to get, uh, gain access to the father. To the new birth. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, there's, the word ask is used twice in verse 23, and they're two different words. The first time the word ask is used, it means to request. He said, whatsoever you shall request. I'm sorry. He said, in that day you shall ask, make no more requests of me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask. This is a different word, ask, than the first word. But it's the same word that's used over in John chapter 14. To call for, require, demand. So he said, in the day that, that I'm raised from the dead, you won't pray to me. The disciples have been looking to Jesus to answer all their questions. Some translations translate it this way. And in that day you shall ask me no more questions. So he's saying, I won't be the one that you go to. Why? Because Jesus made a way for the, to the Father for us so that God could be our Father just like God was His Father. So He said, You won't ask me any more questions, but verily, verily, I say unto you, again, He's saying, This is the truth. It's this way and no other way. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Hitherto, meaning up till now, you have asked, called for, required, demanded nothing in my name. Ask, called for, required, demand. And you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now, what is he talking about we have uh, opportunity to ask for? He's saying we can place a demand on anything in his name that will bring us joy. Now, having my needs met brings me joy. Receiving healing brings me joy. God working on my side and for my behalf brings me joy. How about you? 
Notice that's the criteria that Jesus established. He said, whatever you call for, whatever you require, whatever you put a demand on in my name, that will I do, or that will the Father do. He'll give to you that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14 is where he says, concerning works of ministry, if you put a demand on my name, I'll do it. John 16, he's talking about placing a demand on his name because of your relationship with the Father. He said, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Someone once said, and it's an interesting way to look at it, it's as if John 16 particularly is as if Jesus is giving us a blank check that's already signed. And that as soon as we place a demand, as soon as we access through our petitions, through our prayers, through our placing a demand on his name, we access all the resources of heaven. And it's as if we put the, the, uh, our request in Jesus' hand. That's what in his name means. It's as if we transfer it into his hands and he stands for us before the Father. I like the thought of that in one respect, but I don't like the thought in another respect. Because Jesus does not stand to represent you before the Father. He made a way so that you could stand before the Father. But the, the, the same fact, the same reality is true either way you look at it. And that is, he's saying my name is the means of granting access to all the resources of heaven. Now let me ask you a question. Is it possible for what Jesus said both in John 14 and John 16, is it possible to place a demand on the name of Jesus for healing based on what he said? Well, healing would certainly make you joyful, wouldn't it? Healing was certainly a work that he did here on the earth, so we know it's part of God's plan and purpose for mankind. Again, we go back to the question that, that uh, Brother Osborne would ask people, is it God's will to keep his promise? Would it be God's will to keep his promise of healing for someone who asks in the name of Jesus? For someone who placed a demand on the name of Jesus for healing, the healing mercy or the healing power of God? Would that be God's will to, to keep that promise? Maybe it's a better question to ask is, is it possible for God not to keep that promise? Is it possible that it's not God's will to keep that promise? Not according to what Jesus said. You remember when uh, the angel appeared to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and told her about the Holy Ghost coming upon her and her bearing a child and so forth? She questions how this was going to happen. It wasn't a statement of unbelief. She just says, you know, how can this be? She's not saying no. She's not rejecting God's plan. She's just saying, I don't understand how this is going to happen. I haven't been with a man. And the angel says the, the Holy Ghost will come and overshadow her. And she'll conceive. And then he tells her about her cousin Elizabeth. He says, Elizabeth, your cousin Elizabeth, who's too old to have children, is pregnant. I think she was six months pregnant at the time. She's going to give birth to a child, and this child will have something to do with the child that you'll have, the Messiah. And then he makes this statement. This is Luke chapter 1 and verse 37. He says, for with God, all things are possible. 
Now, that's a verse of Scripture that, that, that most everybody knows about. They may not know where it's found. The angel said, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Let me read this to you from some other translations. The American Standard Version says, for no word from God shall be void of power. Well, isn't that exactly what Isaiah 55, 11 says? My word shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Darby's translation says, for, because no word shall be impossible with God. On and on and on. I could give you example after example saying the same thing. In the original Greek, the literal Greek translation, it says it this way. For God is able to make every word of his promise come to pass. I like that. For God is able to make every word of his promise come to pass. For God is able to make every word of his promise come to pass. Folks, there's power in the word. There's power in the word of God. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 9. I love this story because I can relate to it. Jesus comes back from another experience. And he finds that there is a group of people, the scribes, that are questioning the disciples that were not with him. Jesus had three guys with him and everybody else he left behind. And so when he comes back to where the other disciples were, he finds the religious leaders questioning the the disciples. And that could never be a good thing because you never know what these guys are going to say and you never know what the scribes are trying to do to trip them up. So Jesus asked the question. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 16. Jesus asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he ter- taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. I want you to notice they tried and failed. You ever had what some people might call a faith failure? And I've had my share. There's always a reason for the failure, folks. It's never because God's word's not true. Because God's word is true. Thank God his word is true. So the the disciples have tried and failed, obviously. Verse 19, Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation... How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Notice who Jesus is talking to. It does not say, as we sometimes would assume, that Jesus turned around and looked at the other disciples and said, you bunch of faithless idiots. What is wrong with you people? Why can't you believe? Notice Jesus is still talking to the Father. See, Jesus knows how this stuff works. Jesus knows that it takes faith on the part of the individual receiving So he said to the father, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? 
And the father replied and said, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the, into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, I would submit to you that this is the position that a lot of people in the modern-day church have taken. If you can do anything, help us. If you can do anything, help us. Well, the fact that he asks if you can do anything means he's not sure what Jesus can do. Now, why did these? Uh, why did the father bring his son to Jesus to begin with? I have to assume that G- that he expected Jesus to be there where the other disciples were, and he was probably disappointed to find out Jesus was away and left the other group there. But somebody in the in the disciples group must have said something like, "Well, he gave us authority to do the same things to cast out devils. We can take care of this." And then they tried and failed. Now, the Bible says that Jesus has already conferred upon the disciples authority to cast out devils and to heal diseases, every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. They do have the power. They do have the authority over evil spirits. They do have the authority, the ability, and the authority to set this young boy free. But it didn't work for him. Jesus, knowing how this stuff works, knowing that they don't know how it works, His first response was concerning the faith of the father. That's probably not what the father expected. The father proves that out, though, by what he said to Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then in verse 23, reading from the King James, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I want to read this to you from some other translations. You'll have to bear with me because some of it is revealed in the punctuation, which is the translator's understanding of what Jesus is saying. The American Standard Version says, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst, exclamation point. All things are possible to him that believeth. Another translation says, Jesus replied, Why do you say, If you can? Anything is possible for someone who has faith. Darby's translation is the most, uh, has the most explanation. And Jesus said unto him, the if thou couldst is if thou couldst believe. All things are possible to him that believes. Another translation, Jesus said to the father, why did you say if you can? All things are possible for, for the one who believes. Some are a duplicate of what I've already mentioned. Jesus said to him, if you can, exclamation point, all things are possible for one who believes. Another translation says, if you are able, question mark, everything is possible for the person who believes. Another translation says, if you are able, exclamation point, all things are possible for the one who believes. The complete Jewish Bible says it this way. Jesus said to him, what do you mean if you can? Everything is possible to someone who has trust. I could give you more uh, examples of this as well, folks, but I want you to understand that most translations identify, I believe correctly, what Jesus is responding to the Father. He's literally saying it's not a matter of who can do what. It's a question of whether or not you can believe. It's not a question of the power. 
It's a matter of whether or not you will believe. So the father answers. And he says, straightway the father of the child cried out and said, with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And apparently that was enough for Jesus to work with. He said, Lord, I believe. Not sure how much I believe, but Lord, I believe. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent them sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said that he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, and he presented him back to the Father. Now I want to read from Matthew chapter 17's version of this for the last part to get the disciples back involved in this. Beginning in verse 19, it says, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart, afterwards in other words, away from the crowd, and said, Why could we not cast him out? See, again, that proves that they tried and failed. Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible with you. And nothing shall be impossible with you. Now let me ask you a question. If they didn't believe, then why did they try to cast it out in the first place and fail? Why did they put themselves in a position where it did fail to work? Where was the unbelief involved here? Well, there's only one explanation, and that is they attempted to use the same authority that Jesus had conferred on them to cast out devils as to heal sickness and disease. And when it didn't get bring the results that they were accustomed to getting, another way to say that is when it didn't bring immediate results, then they took the position that it hadn't worked. They gave up on the authority that they exercised. My point is very simply this. They were affected by what they saw. They had to have been. Jesus came, comes on the scene, is not affected whatsoever by what the apostles have tried and failed, or the disciples have tried and failed to do. He recognizes the reality, the truth of the matter, and that is his authority works whenever you can find somebody that has faith to receive it. It won't always work apart from faith. You remember in Mark chapter 6, it talks about Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. It says, and he could there do no mighty work, except he laid his hands on a few folks with minor ailments. King James says sickly folks. That's what it means. It means folks with minor ailments and got them healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Their unbelief, the unbelief of the people in the city of Nazareth, kept the power of God from working or affecting any major result. Was Jesus less anointed in Nazareth than he was in Capernaum where he did miracles? No, he's the same person working with the same anointing on the same mission in both cities. What was the difference? The difference wasn't with Jesus. The difference was with faith, the faith of the individuals. In Capernaum, they had faith. In Nazareth, they refused to believe. That goes back to what Jesus said to the Father in Mark chapter 9. Why do you say if you can? 
It's not a matter of where the power is. It's a matter of what you can believe. So the disciples were affected by what they saw. They changed what they believed based on what they saw. Now, folks, I want you to, to, um, I want to point something out to you. The father started off in faith. He had to have had some measure of faith to bring his son to Jesus to begin with. He must have heard that Jesus was setting people free. We don't know if he's heard that Jesus is healed or, or delivered anybody in the same condition as his son. Maybe he's heard a story about Jesus delivering somebody that was just as bad off as his son. We don't know. But the fact that he brought his son to Jesus for help tells us that he started off with some kind of measure of faith. He believes something, at least the possibility of something to take place, right? You wouldn't take your son to Jesus if you didn't believe something was going to happen or could happen. So there was some measure of faith that he started with, some seed. And even after seeing the disciples try and fail, Jesus was able to, to resurrect what little bit of faith maybe he started with to get him to confess that he did believe so that he could help the father and deliver the son. The disciples started off in faith, but their faith was affected by what they saw and it turned into unbelief. It's an interesting thing about faith. Faith is a... uh, Faith is not a wide road. Faith is a narrow path. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus talked about those who operated by faith successfully as violently taking the kingdom of God by force. Jesus said from John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of God is coming to you and suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. That means there is an active place that faith must take. An active position. Faith can't be passive and work. It only works when you take hold aggressively to determine to believe. But here's where it becomes a narrow path. See, some people are in passive faith. Their idea is, well, God has the power to do whatever he wants to do for me. And I believe that God, I believe Jesus healed the sick. I believe God can heal me. So whenever God wants me to be well, then he'll just make it happen. Well, there's an element of faith to that in believing in God's power and God's ability. But the passivity of that faith will never bring results. Faith has to be active. There are some things that you just have to go out after the devil to get to take hold of by faith now the other side of that the flip side of that is that Hebrews tells us we which have believed do enter into rest how can faith be active and aggressive and rest at the same time well the answer is very simple and that is you've got to be aggressive in your believing but you can't take the care of it for yourself You can't get over into worry. You can't even become of the mind that unless I say this enough, it won't work. Unless I can make these confessions enough times, it won't work. 
See, some people get into works regarding faith. It becomes a ritual to them rather than a relationship with God. It becomes more about what do I do rather than the faithfulness of God to watch over his word. So you've got to be aggressive in your stance, in your position, in your belief. But you've got to make sure you don't get over into worry. Does that make any sense? Jesus said to the Father, Why do you say if I can? If you can believe, all things are possible. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 17 to the disciples. Jesus explained to them, because of your unbelief, because you let what you saw affect what you believe. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say, you shall say, you would say, unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. I love the last phrase, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Back to the original question, is it God's will to keep his promise? Always. Always. It's never not God's will to keep his promise. Under any circumstance, under any situation. It is always God's will to keep his promise. And a part of his promise is whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, whatever demand you put, Jesus said, whatever demand you put on my name in your relationship with the Father, he'll give it to you. He will give it to you. Let me close with one final scripture. Over in Mark chapter 11, the Bible talks a lot about faith. Jesus is the best one to give us the definition of faith that he's talking about. Mark chapter 11, and after Jesus has cursed the fig tree and it dried up from the roots the next day, he explains to the disciples how this happened. Jesus answering, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Well, we know what his subject is then, don't we? He's talking about faith. He's going to give us the explanation of faith. He says faith works two ways. Verse 23, he said, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. First thing Jesus said about the subject of faith is it's tied to your words. Most people think about faith as being on the believing end. Jesus talked about it on the confessing end. For verily I say unto you, truly this is the way it works. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Shall not doubt in his heart. What does doubting in your heart mean? Being moved by what you see and feel. Shall not doubt in his heart. See, that's what the disciples did with the father who brought his son to them. They started off in faith, but they were moved from their position of faith by what they saw and what they felt about what they saw. They went from believing and acting in faith to doubting in their heart. Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, not be moved by what you see or feel. Now why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus talk about what you see and feel in opposition with what you say Except that he's warning us that there won't always be instant results. 
Jesus didn't get instant results. Even with the fig tree, Jesus didn't get instant results. Now, he got quick results. The thing died overnight and dried up from, and withered from the roots overnight. But he didn't get instant results. Did that affect him? Did he stop there and look at the tree and say, tree, I told you to die? Did he shake his head and say to the disciples, you know, usually I get instant results. What's going on here? See, this would be a, an unnecessary statement to make if we always got instant results. Another question we need to consider is, does the lack of instant results mean that faith is not working? Didn't mean so with Jesus. Why should it mean that with us? Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, not be moved by what he sees or feels. But shall believe, must be talking about believing in his heart, believing independent of or in spite of what he sees and feels. Believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is saying your words will change your reality. He's saying your words will change your circumstance. If you'll hold steady. Your words can shape and form and change the circumstances in the world around you. But you've got to stick with them. Because there will be all, lots of opportunities, all kinds of opportunities for you to see something other than what you said. And the devil will try to bring fear and thoughts of doubt to you because it doesn't look like it's working. Jesus said that's the fight of faith. That's what you have to guard against. Don't change what you say and don't change what you believe about God's word coming to pass even though it doesn't look like it's working. Now I want you to notice that there's not one word of prayer uh, spoken of here. He's saying faith works by speaking to the circumstance or speaking to the situation. Jesus did not pray about the fig tree that he came upon the day before. He looked at it and saw it wasn't bearing fruit and said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He did not pray. He did not ask God to do something about the tree. Jesus spoke to the tree. So faith works by speaking. Speaking to your circumstances. Verse 24, however, tells us that faith works in prayer too. Therefore, because this is the way faith works, faith works by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. I wonder if that would include healing. Well, it's a thing. If you desire it, then it is included. What things soever you desire, when you pray, when you pray, everybody say when. He's telling us time. He's saying, when you pray, believe that you receive them, meaning the things that you desire. In our illustration, we're talking about healing. When you pray, believe that you receive healing, and you shall have healing. Notice he's got to be talking about not always getting instant results here. Because the shall have means will come in the process of time. What do we do in the meantime? Well, when we prayed, we believed we received, so we continue to believe what we receive. When we prayed, we believe we receive healing. So after we pray, we must continue to believe that we receive our healing. Jesus said, 
if he told us the truth. Jesus said it will bring healing every time. You shall have healing. You shall have your healing. Why? Because it's God's will to keep his promise. It's always God's will to keep his promise. And God promised that Jesus would pay the price, which he did, for all of man's sins and for all of man's sickness and disease. Thank God we have healing by the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's wait on the Lord for a moment. Hallelujah. Father, we worship you. We magnify you, Lord Jesus, as our the forgiver of our sins and the healer of all of our sickness. Thank you, Lord, that you redeem our lives from destruction and you crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy. We bless you, Lord Jesus, the same blood that you shed for the forgiveness of sins, you shed for healing for our physical bodies. Your word says, Lord, that we are to glorify you in our spirit and in our bodies because you purchased both of them with your own blood. Lord, we bless you. Your word also says, Lord, that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. In writing to the church, the only means of healing and deliverance that you made available to the church is this prayer of faith that Jesus defined. And you said, Father, that when we pray the prayer of faith, it will save or heal the sick, and you shall raise us up. Therefore, Father, we say with our mouths, because we believe in our hearts, say this after me, I believe I receive my healing in the name of Jesus. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes, I was healed. I believe your word, Father. Therefore, I say with my mouth, because I believe in my heart. No matter what it looks like, no matter how I feel, I believe I receive my healing now in Jesus' name. Now, I thank you, Father, because you said I'll have it. You said you'd make it so. So I worship you. I praise you. And I count it as done. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now, if Jesus told us the truth, folks, the devil doesn't have enough power to keep that from coming to pass. If we hold fast to it. He wants to tell you that it's not working. But he knows the word always works. I've always been intrigued by what the devil says. And how he tempts tempts me. Especially when he tries to tell me that my faith is not working. If my faith really wasn't working. Would he want to draw that to my attention? Wouldn't that cause me to fix it? If it wasn't working. But then why does he tell us something like that? Because he knows it is working. And he wants us to question it. If my faith really wasn't working. That would be the last thing in the world. The devil would ever tell me. Same thing's true for you. 
So when he comes and says it's not working, you don't feel any difference, you don't feel any better, so it can't be working, just realize it for what it is. He's lying to you, trying to affect your faith, trying to get you to doubt in your heart. He's trying to get you to be moved by what you see and what you feel. Don't do it. Don't give in. Jesus said, if you believe you receive your healing, then you'll have your healing. And God's word is true. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his healing mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.